is the scheme on exactly how to order these. Second, starting this Saturday, private insurance companies will have to cover the kits that you buy for yourself. Private plans must either cover or reimburse up to eight home tests per person per month. That means that Americans will be able to either get kits for free under their insurance plans or submit receipts as long as you stay within the monthly limit. Again, that's up to eight kits per person per month starting this Saturday. Testing is a huge issue in getting kids back in school, especially in some of the nation's largest districts. Today, public schools in Chicago were canceled for the fourth day in a row. The Chicago Teachers Union says the city is not doing enough to ensure a safe return to campus. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has called the closures an illegal walkout. Chicago is just one district struggling with COVID closures. Officials in Philadelphia and Oregon and Minneapolis and New Jersey are also trying to reopen and stay open. But that's here in the U.S., a wealthy nation with vaccines just about everywhere. What about in countries that have much bigger struggles? On that front, there may also be some good news. Keeping vaccination rates up means we might keep ahead of COVID-19's mutations. Omicron is not the last one, and whatever comes next could be more like the aggressive Delta variant, or perhaps worse. But two medical researchers have developed a vaccine to help close that gap. One of them joins us tonight, and he is a familiar face. Dr. Peter Hotez is the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. He is also the dean at the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, welcome back. Good to see you again. Uh, great to see you, Joshua. Glad you're feeling better. I am so glad that I'm feeling better, too, especially to talk to you about this news. Tell us about this vaccine called Corbivax. What is Corbivax? So um, at our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, we, I like to say we make the vaccines that the big pharma companies are not interested in making because they're not money makers. We make vaccines for neglected tropical diseases of poverty, parasitic infections such as Chagas disease and schistosomiasis for the poorest regions of Latin America and Africa. And then about 10 years ago, we started developing coronavirus vaccines because they were orphaned too. Nobody cared about them back then. And, and it's kind of interesting for our approach for all of our vaccines, our health economists say if we have to charge more than two or three dollars a dose, you might as well not make them because of the world's poorest people. So all of our processes use low cost approaches. And we use that same approach for our SARS and MERS vaccine. And when the COVID-19 sequence hit, we did the same thing and we made it. We made a very exciting vaccine um, older technology, similar to that used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that's been in use for four decades that parents have been giving to their kids in the United States, for instance, for four decades. And the, the big game changer is that technology, that ability to scale up those types of vaccines is in place, and you name it, in Brazil and Indonesia and Bangladesh and Vietnam. And so we developed that technology and transferred it to India, Indonesia, Bangladesh and Botswana so far, no patent, no strings attached to make it easy, breezy as possible. And now uh, the Indian government just announced that they've got emergency use authorization by the Indian regulators. They have 150 million doses ready to go and yeah. they'll make a billion doses in the next few months. And so, so we're going to vaccinate the world when no one else will. 
and I just want to be clear on what we're talking about. This is different technology than the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, these mRNA vaccines. This is kind of an older technology that's still applicable to COVID-19. That's right. And it seems actually to work uh, about as well from what we can see from the virus neutralizing antibodies and the T-cell responses. The difference is no limits to the amount you can scale. There's no learning curve because it's already in place uh, across the world. And we took took patents off the table. Simple refrigeration, no limit to the amount you can make. Uh, and it really does check all of the boxes that you would want for, uh, for uh, a vaccine for COVID-19. Release for emergency use authorization in adults 18 and over. But now we have the clinical trials going on in kids, and we're also got clinical trials going on as a booster. Because, you know, Josh, we, Joshua, we have this problem. Delta arose out of an unvaccinated population in India earlier last year, and then Omicron arose out of an unvaccinated population in Southern Africa. And Mother Nature's telling us what she has in store for us. We're going to have another major variant come this summer after we get through Omicron, unless we make a commitment to vaccinate the world. And now our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, our modest-sized research institute, is making more vaccine for low- and middle-income countries than the U.S. government or any other G7 country. And, and well, we're happy to have that role, but we need the others to step up. Well, with regards to that, I wonder how that fits into the overall timeline for beating back COVID, if indeed we can beat back COVID. Dr. Albert Borla, who's the CEO of Pfizer, was on CNBC today, and here's what he said. It caught one of our producers by surprise. Here's what he said about the timeline that he sees for getting COVID under something resembling control. Watch. under something resembling control. Watch. But because you will have everyone vaccinated uh, and uh, everyone, uh, all of the rest of the people diseased, we will control, let's say, within the next 10 years, uh, this, this virus. I believe it will continue to be, to be present because it's spread everywhere and because both natural infection and vaccinations seems to produce not very durable immune protection. So it's going to be coming again and again, but we can have it perfectly controlled. 10 years, Dr. Hotez, are we really talking about dealing with the ups and downs of COVID surges and vaccines and shutdowns for 10 more years? How, how do you see it? Well, as long as we have to pay billions of dollars to vaccinate the world, uh, it will be 10 years, but, but it doesn't have to be that way. Here's, here's what we need to do. We need to vaccinate the world's low and middle income countries before the next variant arises. And it's doable. Um, here's, here's what needs to be done. There are a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, almost a billion in Latin America, another billion in the world's uh, you know, low and middle income countries in Southeast Asia. It's three billion people. We need nine billion doses. And we can't wait that 10 years to do this through mRNA technology. We can do it now with simpler technology that, to, from what we can see, is looking good and may even be more durable than some of the mRNA vaccines. But we need resolve from the G7 leaders. We need, you know, President Biden got up there at the end of the year and, and boasted how the U.S. government has provided 275 million doses 
more than any other country. Well, heck, you know, we, we just did that with our Center for Vaccine Development, and, and that's more than any of the other G7 countries. So we, this defeatist attitude and this, you know, being kind of asleep at the wheel, we need to be able to vaccinate the world. We can, and if, if the G7 leaders aren't willing to do it, we'll do it here in our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. A few other things I want to ask you about before I have to let you go. We mentioned that school systems across the country, some big city school systems, are struggling to get back in sessions. There's still these all these concerns about, you know, whether it's safe to bring teachers back on campus, whether there's enough testing, enough access to masks, and so on. How do you see that in terms of where we are with getting kids vaccinated, with the increasing approvals for vaccines for different age groups, and then with just the efforts that different communities have undertaken or not, perhaps, to get COVID under control. How, how do you see us in terms of, of getting schools back to normal? Well, we've underachieved in terms of vaccinating our kids overall. So about if you look at first at the teenagers, 12 to 17, about 75% are vaccinated in the Northeast. Not perfect, but getting there. But here in the South, in, in Texas, it's about half that. So we're essentially not vaccinating our teenagers. Then when you look at the little kids, five and up, we're talking about maybe 15% of the little kids have been vaccinated. So parents are holding back to vaccinate their kids um, with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So we've got to fix that and, and repair some of the vaccine hesitancy. And we still don't have a path for the, for the little kids yet. So that's problem one. You know, right now, school superintendents, uh, school boards are really struggling because, as I've said, it's a choice between a bad decision and a bad decision because the bad decision, number one, is we keep kids with virtual learning and we know the mental health effects of that and the Surgeon General has articulated this beautifully, the mental health aspects of not having kids in school. On the other hand, yeah. we also have data that says one in seven kids who get COVID have long COVID and uh, po possibly inducing diabetes and teachers getting sick. So how do you keep the kids safe? So there's no good decision here. And, and I have a great amount of empathy and sympathy for whatever the school boards ultimately make. One last thing. Uh, by far the top story on NBCNews.com today for quite a while was about the cold weather that's about to blow through the upper Midwest and the Northeast. It's already begun to come through with more people congregating inside and with the increased concern about both COVID and flu season, what would you say to folks? I mean, this seems like sort of a, a perfect scenario, more people inside to stay warm, for COVID to move more easily. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, first of all, you know, we've seen these big COVID peaks in the south in the summer and big peaks in the winter in the north. And people are saying that's due to seasonality and the fact that people are being exposed more. And, and I go through this with good colleagues like Mike Osterholm and others, and we don't really know the basis for seasonality yet for COVID-19. But no question we're seeing, uh, seeing co-infections with flu. We saw that at the very beginning with the outbreak in Wuhan, combined flu and COVID co-infections. And don't forget, it's not just that. We've also got respiratory syncytial virus, um, and, which is an important problem of kids. And we have adenovirus. And by the way, historically, when measles epidemics occurred, they occurred late, late winter, early spring. And the anti-vaccine movement may be having spillover effects against other childhood vaccinations. So this is going to be a very challenging uh, next few months in terms of navigating these virus pathogens. 
And bear in mind, you know, if you want to get vaccinated, you can do it quickly, quietly. No one has to know but, know, but you and your doctor. You can go to planyourvaccine.com. We're happy to help point you toward information that will help get you and your family vaccinated. Dr. Peter Hotez, always good talking to you, sir. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. Still to come, another standoff between the U.S. and Russia. But this week, they're standing face-to-face. The two countries held almost eight hours of talks today. Former Ambassador Michael McFaul joins us to break down what they want and what happens now. We're glad you're with us for Now Tonight from NBC News. Invading another country is usually an act of war. The U.S. and NATO are holding talks with Russia in hopes of preventing it from invading any more of Ukraine. But if it does, then what? Ukraine borders Russia. Since November, 100,000 Russian troops have stationed along that border. Those are those areas in red on the map. No wonder the West is worried about a mass invasion. Back in 2014, Russia took the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. Today, the U.S. and Russia engaged in nearly eight hours of talks. Western allies hope to prevent history from repeating itself. But why? Is Ukraine really such a big deal to the U.S.? National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan suggests that it very much is. Here's part of what he told Lester Holt in a nightly news exclusive. We believe that the Russians have positioned tens of thousands of troops and advanced military equipment on the border with Ukraine and that they have done so with at least the capability, if not the intention, to invade. We believe the threat of invasion is real and we are determined through a combination of deterrence and diplomacy uh, to avert that circumstance, to defend Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty and to convince the Russians that the right course to go down uh, is a course of diplomacy rather than a course of conflict. Let's dive into this with NBC News national security and international affairs analyst Michael McFall. He is a former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Ambassador, it's good to see you again. And I wonder if you could just start by telling us what you made of today's talks. The sense I got was that this was just kind of a curtain raiser, sort of setting the table for everything. Each side got to lay out what's on their mind and then potentially more substantive action-oriented talks come after this. But is that what happened? I think that's exactly right. Uh, There was no real negotiations being done. In fact, Wendy Sherman, the head of the American delegation, basically said that. Um, What they did were trying to do, I think the Biden administration was trying to do, is to figure out is does Putin and the Russian government actually want to negotiate about European security matters uh, and if, if so, it sounds like the Biden team is ready to talk about lots of things. Some things they're not willing to talk about, like, you know, sanctions and no more NATO expansion. Uh, but on many other things, they hinted that they were, and they wanted to hear from Mr. Rubkoff. You're showing him right there. I used to deal with him on a weekly basis when I was a U.S. ambassador. They wanted to hear from him. Are they serious? And I don't think they figured that out yet. They, I think they heard enough to suggest there might be real negotiations, but not enough to convince them completely of that. Freak.